The reading this morning is from Luke 23, 44 through 47. Luke 23, 44 through 47. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Good morning. It's good to see you all out this morning. I see a lot of new faces to me. I hope to get to meet you afterwards. Uh, but if not, hopefully some will, and uh, we'll get to know you a little bit. Let us know if you need anything, or if there's anything we can do for you. <clears throat> you know, a few years ago, my wife and I, uh, we kind of made a covenant together about cheap motels uh, for reasons that I can't repeat publicly. Things that, that happened and things we found and, and all of those things you might have some experience with, so I probably don't need to. But we just said, you know what, we're going to scrimp and save. We pack stuff in the cooler. We eat along the way out of the back seat, you know, and, and uh, we, we find ways to pinch pennies a lot of times when we travel. But we said, no, no more with cheap motels. Well, we were on our way home from Arkansas Friday night. And I've uh, got Amelia registered for school, and it was late, you know, and it's, it's June, first, second week of June. We're, we're coming up into the area where it's like, it's time, I'm getting tired. It's about 11 o'clock, and um, we're in that, that uh, land between the lakes region of, of Kentucky, where it's, there's recreation everywhere. And I waited till 11 o'clock, right, to, to get into that area and, and started to run into trouble. But, but an hour before that, we debated whether to get a motel at one we'd stayed in before. It's a pretty nice place, but the rates were 140 plus tax. And we couldn't pull the trigger. I mean, I was like, I know, about the, I know about the cheap motel rule and stuff, but man, I can't do that. So it's like, nah, I can't either. So we, we said, but the risk was we're getting into that area where it's crowded and then if you go farther than that you're on the western kentucky parkway in the middle of nowhere and and the motels have personal names on them right <laughs> patty's inn you know rotabas suites and um, i said boy we're going to take this risk so i got off at one and uh and we went up to it and, and it was full i even walked over to a cheap motel next to it just because i was where it was full we said oh man here we go we've got like one exit left before we get on the western kentucky parkway and i got off this exit and it was one of those deals where you got off and, and the motel's not there it's it's 0.5 miles that way and that way meant turn right turn right and go down this little road into town and so here we go so we pulled in and uh we got a cheap motel we got a cheap motel um went in flipped the lights on i went first I did. Oh, I did. I was ready to like shut the door or, or you know, step on something that ran away, you know. And flip the lights on. Look good. First thing I see was like a, like a marble tabletop with a TV on it. A nice white 
bed linens, and the pillows were stacked up at the headboard, like, like standing up, three of them, just like the Hampton Inn. Just like the Hampton. It's like, yeah, so we went in, it smelled okay, hit the AC pretty quickly, and set everything down, and I'm thinking, man, I just got away with this one. And then Monica walked into the, to the, to the vanity area, turned on the light back there, and there's a spider going up a wall. I was like, oh no. And she, you know, she's like, kill, kill that thing. And actually, I think you killed that one. And um, she kind of gave me that look. I'm like, oh man, just let that be the only thing. Then she flips on the bathroom light and goes in. Another spider. Another spider, which I hear about through the bathroom door. And uh, I go in after that and I look and there's, a, there's an insect trap behind the toilet down on the floor. And she's like, look, there's an insect trap down there. I was like, yeah, there's an insect trap. That's good, you know, you can look at it two ways, you know. If there wasn't an insect trap, you know. So I'm trying to just make this happen. And uh, I, I just said, you know, I'm gonna get into bed and just, just curl over. And I did, and I was like, bed's comfortable. I didn't, I didn't hear anything and I went out. Well, lo and behold, we got in later uh, yesterday afternoon and. We scurried about doing a bunch of things we had to do. And uh, I got up early this morning, as is my habit, and um, tidied up some things and refreshed the uh, lesson. And I went in to wake Monica up, as is, as is customary most of the time. I went in to get her up, and I said, I put my hand on her arm, I said, you forgive me yet? Thinking that a good night's sleep, you know, in her own bed would do it. She, she just kind of rolled over, her eyes weren't open yet. She said, did you bring me coffee? <laughs> right there it was. I was ready. And uh, so I'm sure that my wife loves me unconditionally. Uh, she, she shows that every day and, and has proven that. But it is good to meet conditions sometimes. And I had the cup of coffee in my hand. So I met those conditions. It also helped that we, for some odd reason, were folding laundry at the kitchen table this morning. Um, that doesn't happen every Sunday morning. Two of us standing, folding laundry on the kitchen table, but uh, we're folding laundry and a spider came out, fell out of the laundry basket. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and she's like, well, go get something. So she walked, and she steps on it accidentally to go get something to kill it. And it was a mess. And I was like, it's just like a cheap motel, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I didn't say that till just now, but I was thinking that. I was like, see, see, we're just, we just live in a cheap motel. It's no big deal. But, uh, yeah, it's good, it's good to meet conditions sometimes, but, but for obvious reasons, uh, we need to learn about unconditional love. And this morning, as we enter into Luke chapter 23, we are entering into the heart of the gospel of grace. We're entering into the heart of it. God's unconditional love is shown in its fullest uh, beginning in this chapter. Actually, you could back up to chapter 22, where Jesus submitted himself to arrest and was illegally tried and, and, and falsely accused. And, and in this chapter now is led to Pilate. In the next chapter, the last chapter of Luke, he is raised up. But already... In this chapter, you can see, as we are, are entering into the heart of the gospel, we, Paul defined the gospel in its simplest terms in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said it is the death 
and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the simplest working definition we have. And we have now Jesus being led to his death in this this, uh, chapter. So we're entering into the heart of it. And already, already the gospel is having its effect. And Jesus hasn't even arisen from the dead yet. But he's already changing hearts and minds by the way that he went to and hung upon the cross. He profoundly impacted some people around him at that time, cemented some faith, not in the resurrection yet even, but but by his willful submission to the mission that he had been preaching and proclaiming thus far in his ministry. He set his face toward Jerusalem when he was in Galilee and defiantly resisted temptations from Satan. And he uh, uh, refrained from avenging himself upon those evils that men cast upon him, the accusations that were made against him. He's shown mastery in restraint to this time, but he willingly, in this chapter, walked toward the suffering of the cross. This is the man whom Paul said, turned the world upside down, and he's still turning the world upside down. He's still shaping the way that people look at the world today. So the question I want to put before you is, is Jesus Christ shaping your worldview, the way that you see life, the way that you see death, and the way that you see life after death? Is he shaping your worldview? Because the people that we begin to see in this chapter are having to make decisions with the reality of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross in front of them. They're having to make decisions. This historical event forced them to relook at their lives and the way that they see life. And I want, to, I want that to be the driver for you listening actively this morning. I want that to be what is in your mind. How is this affecting my life, this gospel event? There's basically two ways to look at the world. One is from a materialistic standpoint, an anthropocentric standpoint, man-centered. The material world is all there is. We're part of it. We're part of the matter in this world. Uh, There is no creator God. There is no afterlife as far as men can tell, as far as as science can, can seem to deduce. Uh, decisions then are driven by what gives me the greatest comfort or the most pleasure in my life. Decisions revolve around largely, for most, me, if I have a material standpoint, that this is all there is. I've got one life, I've got one shot at this. That is also why when so many 
consider their lives failures that they're willing to end that life. It's from a materialistic worldview. Those who hold this view were those standing around Jesus at the cross. There were several groups saying, save yourself if you're the Son of God. If you're the Messiah, come down from there. You see, this was the highest value to them, life. Hey, buddy, you've got one life. I mean, if you're the Son of God, you would, because I would, come down from there and save your life. But if you don't, obviously, you don't have the power to do that. You're impotent concerning that thing, and therefore, we will not believe who you are. And so their material worldview led them to inaccurate conclusions about the world. Because they believed that surely no man would allow himself to go through this if he had the power to stop it. We sure wouldn't. We wouldn't do that for others. And so he wouldn't. So they placed their worldview upon him and said, come down from there. Save yourself. The Roman soldiers mocked also, said, if you're the king of the Jews, which was above his head, come down from there. Even one of the criminals next to him, it says, both at the first reviled him and said, save yourself and us if you are him. Everybody around except those few disciples, his mother and some of the women there, had this worldview that if you don't save yourself, you're not who you said you are. And so think about the string of of falsehoods that they'll believe after this. Think about how easy it is then to take teachings and cast your judgment upon them as whether you think they are right or wrong, moral teachings based upon your worldview. It's easy to be misled. It's easy to draw wrong conclusions when your moral view is derived from within yourself. If there is no truth, absolute truth, if Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, and it was not He who willingly offered Himself there on the cross, then you have to place your morality upon that situation, and you say, it's not, He's, he's impotent. He's, he's, he doesn't have the power to come down. That's, that's what happened here. And that's what still happens today. When people fail to see Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah of God, who came to do this very thing, to offer Himself on the cross. They didn't understand the mission of Jesus. They didn't understand the purpose of Jesus. They did not allow the teachings and the ministry of Jesus to change the way that they looked at life. They didn't allow it to sink in enough. They just kept protruding their own viewpoints on Him and judging His words and His actions and falsely accusing Him. We've got to be careful about that. But the biblical worldview is the other one. The biblical worldview. And that would be that there is a God. It's God-centered. That spiritual life is the highest value. And that belief in the afterlife drive decisions that are made in this current life. And that, that the expectation is, the hope is, that there will be a life 
to live after this one with God. Now that's very different. That'll cause someone to, to draw different conclusions, not only about the realities of the gospel, but about what that means to me. That, that forces me to draw some different conclusions that if there is a God, that means something to me. That means there's a creator who's above me. He's more powerful than I am. If the Bible's his word, that means there's an authority that has been spoken into our lives. And that would mean I would need to be accountable to this person. Okay, if Jesus is the son of God, then I've got to look at the cross and find the meaning of the cross and apply that to my life. This is what Jesus told his disciples to go and teach and preach in all the world. The cross, his crucifixion, and the meaning of it. What it means to men. The reality of the gospel should reset. It's like a button. When, when, you, when, you, when you say, I, I believe that that happened and that he, he is who he said he is, it, you might as well hit a reset button because you begin then to relook at every aspect, every facet of your life and allow the gospel to speak into that area of your life. Do you want to see God give his life for men? That's what separates Christianity from all other world religions, you know, is that God gave himself for men to die. And then what's more, what's more profound than that is that God has asked men to be willing to die for him or for one another. No greater love hath a man than to lay down his life for his friend, let alone his family, let alone his his God. That's a profound difference. Do you want to see God lay down his life? Open your Bible and I'll skim with you over some things, but look at chapter 22, about verse 52 to begin with. Now during his ministry, Christ demonstrated over and over again that he was more than a prophet, that he was both the Christ, the son of the living God and the lamb of God. As John testified, he was. He was divine in every way. He was teaching and commanding with authority. He was showing mastery over every area of physical science through signs and wonders. He was healing diseases. He was raising the dead. He was leading. He was counseling. And he was averting arrest. Remember how he walked out through the midst of the mob in Nazareth who was ready to throw him forlong over the, over the cliff? He, he, was, he was averting arrest and assassination attempts while he worked the will of God. It was not yet his time. But when you come to Luke chapter 22, verse 52, that total control that he exhibited until now in his ministry, the total control that he held over his life and the lives of men, completely 180 degree turns around. Watch this. He said in Luke chapter 22, verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But 
look at this. This is your hour. This is your hour. And the power of darkness. This is the hour where it's all going to change. Even as he stepped forward to greet them and some fell back at his presence because they couldn't believe that he would present himself to that degree and there was some fear there. A great mob with swords and clubs came to take Jesus. There was some fear instilled in them and they fell back and he, yet when he put his hands behind his back, everything changed from here on out in the account. And while they twisted that arm up behind his shoulder blade and, and tied that other one to it and put that noose of rope around his neck, the vocabulary changes. Listen, beginning in this chapter in Luke 22, toward the end, they arrested him. They led him to the chief priest's house. They brought him before the council under the cover of darkness. There they mocked him, blindfolded him, beat him, struck him on the face, spoke blasphemies against him, led him back again to the daytime council early in the morning, accusing him of blasphemy against God. Then, chapter 23, verse 1, beginning, that was all in 22. Chapter 23, 1, they led him to Pilate. See, the leader of men is being led around. They led him to Pilate. They accused him. They lied about him. They denied him as their king. Then they sent him, verse 7, to Herod, who questioned him. And when he did not answer, mocked him. His soldiers treated him with contempt and arrayed him in a royal robe and sent him back to Pilate, verse 11. Once again, Pilate examined him, John 18, and to appease the Jews and avoid the death penalty, which he strongly wanted to avoid, scourged him probably just shy of death. Had a crown of thorns driven onto his head. They put it on him, then beat him on the head and presented him to the people. I think Pilate was expecting them to say, that's enough. Let him go. They weren't satisfied with that. They shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. This time, each year, the procurator would release to them a prisoner. Jesus was a prisoner. They would, they would release a prisoner. He found the most notorious prisoner they had probably Within, within their prison walls who was a rebel and a murderer and they presented him alongside Jesus and they chose to release Barabbas, this notorious murderer. Isn't that ironic? Release the murderer and allow the innocent to die. Verse 25, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Do you see how everything's happening to Jesus? Even though he spoke several times, 
affirming and confirming who he was, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He wasn't kicking. He wasn't yelling. He wasn't defending. When he put his hands behind his back, that was decision. A volitional, sacrificial offering that had begun to take place. There he hung on Calvary having made that climb up the mount with that patibulum on his back, that heavy cross bar, verse 33, and they nailed his hands and his feet into the cross and secured him with rope, and he hung there, and they sneered at him. They tested him. They mocked him. They cast lots for his clothes. They blasphemed him, and when he said, I thirst, gave him wine vinegar to drink. His response? Think of it. You're observing this. And, and in fact, in your mind right now, you are. His response? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His response? After the three hours of darkness, the earth shaking, probably the word coming up the mountain already that the veil of the temple had been torn in two. His response, Father, into your hands. Think of this. He's in the hands of men. And he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He gave up his spirit before he gave up on you. He could have called 10,000 angels as we sing, but he died alone on that cross. This indescribable behavior of such a one as Christ, the power of God, the spirit of undying love in this dying man changed the worldview of millions since. But it began right here on the cross. Never more closely would his spirit of love for man be observed than by those who were in closest proximity to him as he hung there. His profession of deity would become reality to several as he refused to fight to save himself and come down the cross, from the cross. Perhaps it was the preaching of John the Baptist or the teaching of Jesus, the many miracles he performed or the magnificent grace displayed here on the cross. Maybe it was even the sign that kind of helped sink it in, but for this one criminal, it was enough. For the one criminal who also wandered why he would allow himself to be hanging on the cross at the beginning, now at the end is saying, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He rebuked the other who continued to blaspheme, who held on to his worldview that if this man had the power, he surely would come down. This other criminal said, he's choosing not to come down. This is a choice. Yes, he was killed, but he didn't yield his spirit up 
until he was ready and he yielded up to the one who gave it to him by his choice. It's criminal. Recognize that already and the resurrection has not occurred yet. And that very day, that criminal was justified by the grace of God being in paradise with his Lord. The centurion, the Roman, the commander of hundreds, stood below in wonder at the things that were happening while Christ was hanging on the cross, but listening, listening to the gospel message. A lot of strange things could happen while a stranger's hanging on a tree and someone come to a lot of different conclusions. This centurion said, surely this was a righteous man. I conclude that he is who he said he was. And I hope that Roman centurion is in paradise right now too. Maybe he had heard from the centurion in Capernaum about his servant. Do you think? you think that spread through the Roman military? Maybe he had, but as he watched, he listened to the teaching of Jesus and watched the life of Jesus. That's what it boils down to. Not all the shock and awe of what all happened as much as the message that he spoke and the life that he lived. Surely he was a righteous man. Now that's important documentation right there, church. Folks, that's important documentation. That's documentation of one saying, affirming that Jesus proclaimed to be free of sin. That the word about him was that he was sinless and no one could accuse him otherwise. And so this Roman, skeptically watching Jesus through his travels in town and out of town and watching him as he handled himself with this poise coming up onto this mountain, the place of the skull to die, listening to the words that he said concluded, he is offering his body his righteous life. Perhaps he even had a fuller understanding than that in exchange for the unrighteousness of men. That's the heart of the gospel. That, that he offered his righteousness and wants to take my righteousness upon him on the cross and put it to death, my unrighteousness, put it to death on that tree. Finally, a councilman comes to take his body down from the cross. A criminal, a centurion, and a councilman. Joseph of Arimathea, who had been following him all along, he and Nicodemus, no doubt, had talked together because they, they came together to the tomb. But Joseph took his body down from the cross in public. He's no longer operating covertly. He and Nicodemus are no longer coming to him by night and saying, we, we know that you're a teacher come from God. 
and trying to defend him from the back row of the Sanhedrin council and when rebuked kept silent. Now they're standing out on the mountain with him knowing that they're pro it's going to cost them a seat on the council. It might cost them more than that and offering to lay this man's body in a brand new tomb nearby on property that he owned near the mountain which no body had ever been laid before the Sabbath set in. He changed their worldview. Uh, that event at the time convinced those men and the women standing with them that this no doubt is the Lamb of God who's laying down his life for the sins of the world. That's a fact. Time hasn't changed it. The next week it didn't change it. 50 days later didn't change it. A decade, two decades, the first century it had not changed. The Christian population went from about 120 to 20 million by the end of the first century, it's estimated. Time hadn't changed it. Centuries do not change historical facts that have happened. We become numb to them. We lose our sense of reality. We lose our sense of mission. We lose our sense of urgency when we are in love with the world. That's all that's changed. We've been born into a place and time where we so easily can take on a world view of things that is worldly. So I want to challenge you this morning. As this church works to come together to take the gospel into our community and into the world, as we, as we take baby steps toward this in a more powerful fashion, I put that before you. Is my view of life affected? Am, am I on mission to become a disciple and to make disciples with, with Jesus, who in his last words said, go and make disciples. When we're in tune with this event, it'll change our view of the world. And this story, just like it touches your heart and mine, this story, this gospel story, will still change the lives and save the souls of many right here around us. Let us be about that business. Let us go and make disciples of all men, teaching them, baptizing them, and teaching them. Let's stand and sing this song.